0: Hi, my name is Hannah Abrams, and I'm here to introduce a reboot episode of The Curious Clinicians. Tonight, we're going to be bringing it back all the way back to episode number three, which addressed the question, why does trimethoprim sulfomethoxazole cause an isolated rise in serum creatinine? This was an episode that was one of the first ones that we recorded, and you'll get to hear sort of our early stages of getting to know each other banter and learning about what I think is a really relevant topic that comes up for me still all the time. And so we wanted to bring it back to make sure that everybody who's joined the show since we initially recorded this got to hear it. Without further ado, episode number three, why does trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole cause an isolated rise in serum creatinine?
1: Welcome to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Tony Brew, an internist and hospitalist in the greater Boston area.
0: And I'm Hannah Abrams, an incoming medicine intern in Boston, Massachusetts.
2: And I'm Avi Cooper, a pulmonary critical care physician in Columbus, Ohio. Today on the podcast, we'll be answering the question, why does the antibiotic trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole cause a rise in creatinine without actually causing kidney injury? Along the way, we'll explore what the serum creatinine level really tells us, talk through some kidney physiology, and discover why perhaps one of the most important procedures of the internist is the med so, Hannah, why this question?
0: Yeah, so the truthful answer to it is that it's something I didn't know. Um so I saw um a clinical case posed about this on Twitter, and the the phrasing was, I'm a medication that's been started for cystitis, and now a patient has been admitted with AKI, and it showed the labs, and the lab showed an uptrend in creatinine with no change in B U uh, N, presumably no change in urine output. And So I I didn't know the answer. The answer was trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, as we're going to talk about. And I wanted to learn more so that I could make it stick, because it seemed like a clinical pearl that would be really helpful for me to remember. How about you guys? Had had you heard of this? Uh,
1: So this is something that I had um, heard about, definitely not during medical school. I only heard about it for the first time as an intern um, during Firm Conference, uh, and I can specifically remember the person who mentioned it. It was Rob Schmerling, who was the firm chief of the firm I was a member of, and he mentioned it during one of the firm conferences, um, and it, for whatever reason, it stuck. It's just one of those facts you hear, and I think you hear it for the first time, and it just sticks. It's
0: their goal tonight, for sure.
1: Yeah. I had heard about it. I um, actually got
2: corrected on rounds, I think, like as a <laughs> as an intern maybe, of like, hey, maybe we should stop the back drum, and they said no, and here's why we don't need to stop it.
0: <laughs> okay, so the theme I'm getting here is intern year. I love it.
1: So so you're, you're ahead of the game, by the way, that means.
0: <laughs> so for anyone who hasn't heard of it, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is a commonly prescribed antibiotic that is also known by the name Bactrim, though we'll stick to the generic here for accessibility. The first thing that we need to know to understand why trimethoprim and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole causes an isolated rise in creatinine is to talk about what creatinine actually tells us when we measure it. So when we're measuring glomerular filtration rate, it's exactly that. GFR is glomerular filtration rate. We want to see how much is getting filtered past the glomerulus without necessarily looking at all the stuff that's happening in the renal tubules that are just downstream of it. So ideally, if we were going to measure glomerular filtration, a perfect marker for that would be something that is freely filtered at the glomerulus, meaning it comes completely through the glomerulus, But it's not changed in the tubules in any way. It's not reabsorbed, secreted, synthesized, metabolized. We actually have a perfect marker. That perfect marker is inulin, which is a fructose polymer. And the only not perfect thing about inulin is that it is a pain to measure. So I will link in the show notes a protocol that I found for, for doing it. You actually have to inject it because it's not something that's physiologically created. And suffice it to say, it would be not really something that we could necessarily do at four in the morning every day for rounds to track GFR. Are
1: you suddenly a surgeon rounding at four in the morning?
0: <laughs> well, the labs.
1: <laughs> ah, I see.
0: I mean we shouldn't wake our patients up at four in the morning for labs, but that is a whole other well, podcast. I mean
1: you know,
2: if we had been residents like thirty years ago, we would have been spinning our own hemoglobins and, and stuff and measuring, you know, and like hematocrits and maybe we would have injected some inulin too, I don't know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right, so so we're left um, at least for now with creatinine. So you know, what if it's not the ideal marker, what's problematic with using serum creatinine as our marker of GFR?
0: I, I too am hurt by the insult to our glorious creatinine as a marker, but it does have some flaws. So creatinine is kind of our common go-to, and the reason that we use it is that it's produced at a mostly stable rate and predictable rate by muscle tissue. It's freely filtered, but it does get slightly secreted in the proximal tubule. So normally, that amount of secretion is steady enough that it doesn't affect how we use it to track GFR over time. It's predictable enough that it doesn't affect how we use it clinically. But in the case that we're going to talk about tonight, first is helpful to understand why it, we might see a rise in any renally excreted molecule. So in any molecule that's excreted by the kidney, we could see a rise for one of pretty much four, five different reasons, Tony, as you kind of explained it to me. The first, the most straightforward one would probably be increased production, so rapto. Second would be decreased filtration, which is the thing we're talking about. The third would be getting metabolized more by the kidney. The fourth would be increased excretion. And then the fifth is not quite as relevant to creatinine because it's not reabsorbed, but decreased reabsorption. So usually when we see an increase in creatinine, we go straight for decreased filtration, right? Because that's kind of the most common cause we might think about. Decreased glomerular filtration is a decrease in GFR. Usually we're right. For this, when we think about why trimethoprim causes a rise in creatinine, we've got to think about some of the other options.
2: So how does trimethoprim kind of factor into that schema that you set up? How could it affect one of those, one of those options?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I want us for a second to picture the proximal convoluted tubules in our minds. And I want you to think about the cell of the proximal convoluted tubule. So there's a blood vessel on one side of it, and then there's the tubular lumen on the other, right? And in order for creatinine to get across the cell from the blood into the tubular lumen, into the urine, it's got to get into the cell and then out the other side. There's a couple transporters that essentially do that. So they actually have very convenient, straightforward names. There's no eponyms here, but I actually kind of like their acronyms better. So uh, the first one is Organic Anion Transporter 2, or OAT, the next one is multi drug and toxin <laughs> exclusion protein 1 and 2K. So mate 1 and mate 2K. Uh, and then the last one sadly does not have a fun name. It's the organic cation transporter 2, but we can call it OCT, I guess. I, I don't want it to feel like the OCT one out. I don't want it to be OCT word. <laughs>
2: With like OAT2 <laughs> and MATE2K, I'm like imagining like eating cereal, playing PlayStation. or Yeah, of like course, Like
0: these are cute <laughs> renal transporters is what I'm saying. I, I want them to be memorable. <laughs> uh, and then OCT. But OCT actually is really important here. So trimethoprim is a weak organic base. So it has a slightly positive charge of physiologic pH. And it is secreted by the renal tubules through a lot of those same transporters, right? OCT, OAT, and MATE. And actually, specifically O2, OCT2 and 3, and then MATE1 and MATE2K. So if a patient has a really high dose of trimethoprim in their system, the trimethoprim is going to compete with creatinine for the transporters. Less of the creatinine is coming across the cell into the urine, and so it's going to stay in the blood. And that's why you see a rise in serum creatinine.
2: So if, it's super cool. Yeah, it is really cool. But if we see it happen, like say, like I did when I was an intern and I didn't know, um, is is there a, an acceptable level of bump from in creatinine from trimethoprim that is acceptable or that we should anticipate and kind of not be surprised by?
0: Yeah, it's it's a great question, and from what I understand, it's an active point of investigation in some of the pharmacologic literature. The very short answer is that in healthy subjects who got five milligrams per kilogram BID or 200 milligrams BID of trimethoprim, both of those induced a rise of about 20 to 25%. So this is not a sudden doubling in serum creatinine, but it is a pretty significant bump. I just want to point out, based on kind of my understanding of the literature, it also might vary with some of the individual patient polymorphisms, as well as uh, the dose that you give and all the other things that can produce vagaries in serum creatinine concentration, including baseline renal function.
1: All right, so let me try to recap what we talked about so far. So if a patient is prescribed a medication that contains trimethoprim, um, that trimethoprim is going to compete with creatinine for the same transporters that would typically move creatinine from the blood into the tubular lumen and then into the urine. And so that competition is going to lead to decreased secretion of creatinine, and as a result, the blood levels, what we usually measure, serum, are going to be higher. Is that that that's basically Not the, out of the answer part, yeah. in a nutshell? Okay, all right. But it is possible that when Avi was an intern, he was right. Yes, and that patient had an acute kidney injury, right? I think many. I I think I've seen patients who actually have true acute kidney injury from trimethoprim uh, sulfamethoxazole. So if that happens, like what are the potential etiologies in that case?
0: So I just spent the first half of the episode telling you all the reasons why if you see trimethoprim and a rising creatinine, you should not think about AKI. Uh, for the back half of the episode, I'm actually just going to completely contradict myself. And I want to walk you guys through the pathophysiologic differential diagnosis of true kidney and electrolyte abnormalities that you might see with trimethoprim. So there's a really nice paper from the Infectious Diseases Group at the Houston VA that looked at inpatients who had gotten trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole and either remained inpatient or in close outpatient follow-up long enough to get follow-up labs at a set time point. So this is a relatively sick cohort at baseline. And in a sample of about 500 patients, 6% had a rise in both BUN and creatinine that was thought to be consistent with AKI and clinically based on chart review, was attributed to the trimethoprim rather than to other causes. So, Avi, you've got about a 1 in 20 chance based on...
1: <laughs> Pretty good for an intern.
2: Yeah. That's probably about... Yeah, I would say for, for 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 my experience as an intern, I'd say that was probably on par.
0: <laughs> uh, professional learning. You... Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what we're here for. Um, absolutely. So, I want to walk you guys through four... Kind of broad categories that you can think about when you do see an AKI that's associated with trimethoprim. The first is acute interstitial nephritis. So because it's a sulfa drug, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole can cause acute interstitial nephritis or AIN. Although actually there was only one case that was documented in this cohort, uh, and of note, 18 patients had urine eosinophils sent.
1: In, uh, appropriately, I, I will say I, ca- I can't help but interject. Um, none had positive urine eosinophils, and, and frankly, that's not surprising because urine eosinophils are highly insensitive. This, by the way, if you can't tell, I'm on my things we do for no reason soapbox right now. Avi and Hannah can see that. Let
0: this into the script um, for this moment.
1: Yeah, exactly. I demand. I demanded that it be included. <laughs> There's actually a box of soap under his feet. So. <laughs> I can use it. I'm a rather short guy. So anyway, d- don't check your eosinophils if you're looking for AINs. So I'm we sorry. We will Anna. link
0: to those studies in the show notes. I, it's always great to review some evidence-based literature. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, acute tubular necrosis has also been noted as a rare side effect of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. And then the third one is crystal formation. So in dehydrated patients who have gotten trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, it can actually precipitate and form crystals if... The concentration is high enough. And a really interesting pearl is that in patients who are hypoalbuminemic or have other drugs on board that might bind albumin, like if they've recently gotten penicillin, the concentration of free trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is actually can be high enough to cause it to precipitate even if the patient is not dehydrated.
2: that's pretty cool too. It is. And so are are you describing a drug-drug interaction?
0: Yeah. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about is just generally drug-drug interactions, which trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole has a lot of. But I want to specifically talk about one thing that you should think about in any patient that you're starting on trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole that's a big takeaway from this for me, which is that, again, we just went through this whole thing about how trimethoprim competes with creatinine for secretion. And one of those proteins remember was called multidrug and toxin excretion protein. So it turns out that multiple <laughs> drugs and toxins are excreted by that protein.
1: It's kind of nice when they name it like with its at least to some extent with its function.
0: yeah, no I mean, this could be a an eponym, but it is not. Thank God <laughs> uh, so anyway. It turns out that multiple drugs and toxins are excreted by it. There's actually a whole host of medications that are excreted through this system including cimetidine, uh, pyrimethamine, the antiretroviral dolutegravir, and actually very much of note metformin. Uh so metformin The metformin interaction, because metformin is so commonly prescribed, has been particularly well studied, and I want to use it to give you guys a sense of the numbers. So metformin competes with trimethoprim also at the MATE1 and MATE2K, as well as the OCT2 transporters. And one study found that people who are getting trimethoprim and metformin actually increase the maximum plasma concentration of metformin by 37%. So metformin doesn't cause AKI, but other nephrotoxic drugs, including chemotherapeutic agents, can also have their levels increased in a similar way by trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. It's also worth noting that trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole inhibits CYP 450 2 2C8 and 9. Definitely had to write that down to remember (laughs) it. Just to switch us over to the liver for a minute, which can lead to supertherapeutic warfarin levels and supertherapeutic levels of oral hypoglycemic agent. So it... All comes down to the very careful medrec. The, the
1: the effect on metformin I find like absolutely astounding. The idea that the period of time uh, that the patient is receiving trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, they may have an increase in their metformin concentration by up to almost forty percent. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's striking. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, metformin is is very well tolerated, so that change probably does not have clinical relevance. But it just goes to show that when you compete with those transporters, something's going to get left behind. Apparently, in this case, it's usually (laughs) metformin.
0: Yeah, I mean, the big, and we'll talk about this in a second too, but the big clinical scenario where this can come up a lot is in patients with HIV who have HIV nephropathy, so a baseline renal insufficiency, and are on treatment doses of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for PJP pneumonia, can have both hyperkalemia that we're going to talk about, And also potentially a lot of drug-drug interactions, and they may also have long-term, like, uh, long-term metabolic syndrome, so they might also be on metformin from antiretrovirals.
1: Yeah, so so you've alluded to the effects that uh, trimethoprim have in the kidney as relates to secretion of creatinine. Well, we've you, talked about that, but you've also alluded to the idea that it also affects potassium, and you know, this has come up on Curbsiders episodes. I know Joel Tolf has talked about it. Can you kind of remind us a little bit about what happens there? I guess this is probably more of a distal phenomenon.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I kind of got ahead of myself there. <laughs> I will not, <laughs> I will not be able to explain this as eloquently as Dr. Joltoff. But the basic idea is that trimethoprim has the act, it has the effect of acting like the potassium sparing diuretic amiloride on the epithelial sodium channels or ENAC channels of the collecting duct. So these are the channels that set up a sodium gradient that we normally need to be able to secrete more potassium at the collecting duct. So when that channel is inhibited, there's a more positive charge in the tubular lumen and you can't secrete as much potassium. So people who are already hyporeninemic hypoaldosterone like patients on ACE inhibitors or with chronic diabetic nephropathy or as we talked about HIV nephropathy are at higher risk for hyperkalemia and it's more common in higher doses hence the risk with those treatment doses for PJP pneumonia.
2: All right, so just to summarize kind of what you said um, to make sure that 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 we understand this there are several ways that trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole can cause actual renal injury, not just a, I don't want to say fictitious rise in the creatinine, but a a rise in the creatinine. Isolated? Isolated, yeah, or uh, uh, that doesn't necessarily imply renal injury, but it can cause renal injury by uh, acute interstitial nephritis, acute tubular necrosis, as well as crystal nephropathy. There also are important drug-drug interactions to be aware of, especially metformin, and it can block the ENEC channel with an amyloride kind of potassium sparing diuretic um like effect and cause hyperkalemia.
0: You you did. You really got an ENAC for this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Also, I just want to say I'm proud of all of us for saying trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole through this entire episode. I think we. I mean, I've been sweating the whole time (laughs)
1: thinking about having the same.
2: I think if you add all of it up, it's at least ten times, so we can say we've said
1: it ten times. But
0: yeah, yeah, no, we did vocal exercises before this. (laughs) Bevacizumab. (laughs) Bevacizumab. All right.
1: All right. So so Hannah, is there anything that when you were reading about this, you didn't have an opportunity to put into the the script that you think might be valuable to share with the audience and share with me and Avi? (laughs) Please, please do.
0: The last way in our ways that a substance that's renally cleared can be falsely elevated or can be elevated is something wrong with the lab. So this is not something you want to jump to immediately, but it is something to think about, right? Is that hyperkalemia from hemolysis or is it from, you know, actual hyperkalemia? And there's basically the, the most common assay or one of the more common assays that's currently used for this is called the Jeff Fay method. Uh, thank you to the manuscript who put in the accent mark so that I know how to say that the Jeff Faye method. method. There's a whole bunch of biochemistry involved that I'm not even remotely going to pretend to understand or try and get into on a 30-minute podcast. But the key thing to know is that it can be very much affected by a couple medications, so cytosine, barbiturates, but also more commonly used medications like second-generation cephalosporins. So again, this is not something that occurs very commonly. The assays now are better Uh, but it's still happening. I saw a case report of it from 2020 still. So it's something to think about if you're really out of options to explain.
1: Fantastic.
2: Yeah, that was great. Hannah, do you mind giving us your take-home points?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So first take-home points, what is creatinine? Uh, Trimethoprim and creatinine are both excreted in the proximal tubule by OAT, OCT, and MATE. And to remember that there are a whole bunch of medications that are also excreted via that same transporter system. My second takeaway is you, if you prescribe trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole and the creatinine rises, my, my, I'm trying to rewire my brain to say, okay, look at the BUN and the urine output before you jump to AKI, because not all that changes creatinine is a change in glomerular function. My third point, medrec is key. So especially with trimethoprim and now also with metformin, right? So now I know sometidine and metformin have this effect. I really want to think twice about what other medications the patient's on, especially if they have chronic kidney disease or if they're on other medications. And then trimethoprim can cause an acute rise in serum potassium that we should look out for, especially in patients who are getting a high dose. And then lastly, oh my gosh, I am thankful for pharmacists, nephrologists, and transplant ID doctors. Wow, this is a lot to keep in mind. How often do you think about the renal transporter that each drug is using? It's uh, just kind of amazing to learn about, and I'm so thankful for pharmacists.
1: And this drug, it remains so important for like just so many different conditions.
0: So that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you for joining us for this reboot. And as a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on all of our episode releases and have detailed show notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with BCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. So for more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash Curious Clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians.